Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. As we have discussed in previous episodes, we are using this podcast to showcase the amazing work of people who have dedicated their lives to living and working in some of the most challenging places in the world. In doing so, we explore solutions that all of us can be part of in an effort to protect wildlife and the ecosystems that all of us depend on for healthy, prosperous lives. We recognize that each of us experiences nature in different ways and that all of us have unique talents and abilities to inspire others, explore, connect with, and protect Mother Nature, no matter how we interact with her. Our guest today is Kara Yar Khan, an international speaker, entrepreneurial humanitarian, film producer, and aspiring author. Kara is truly a global citizen, born in India, raised in Canada, educated in Italy, and a world traveler through her work with the United Nations. Like so many of those that have been on this podcast, Kara believes in the power of people to make the world a better place for themselves and others. Most inspiring to me, Kara is a powerful advocate for people with disabilities. In the prime of her life, Kara received a life-altering diagnosis, hereditary inclusion body myopathy, a rare form of muscular dystrophy that leads to severe disability. Never one to back down in the face of a test, Kara committed to continue her love of exploring even as the disease progressed, seriously weakening her body. Her latest adventure, a 12-day, 200-mile expedition on horseback in whitewater raft into the Grand Canyon of the United States. Today, we'll hear from Kara about that trip, the challenges she overcame in the process, and the lessons that all of us can take from it. So Kara, welcome. We are so excited to have you on the Voices of Nature podcast, and we are just so intrigued by your your journey through life and your journey into the Grand Canyon, and we can't wait to hear more about it. Thank you, Bob. I'm excited to share it with all of you. Can you, as we start, can you tell us a bit more about your background and what life has been like after being diagnosed with hereditary inclusion body myopathy? Absolutely. As you mentioned, I grew up in Canada and Canadian education system very much has a social justice mindset. So I learned a lot about international issues throughout school and decided at a young age that I wanted to grow up and be a humanitarian. So I studied international development at the University of Guelph, which is outside of Toronto, to pursue a career with the United Nations humanitarian agencies. And long story short, I won an internship through the United Nations Association of Canada and began my career with the World Food Program, the UN Food Agency, in Quito, Ecuador, in South America. And that was part of this exhilarating international career, which to date has spanned 10 countries. In country number two, I started having these inexplicable falls. And, you know, I had grown up as an athlete. And as a dancer, I love dancing. And so I just thought it was the high heels I was wearing or the cobblestone streets that I was walking through. But in fact, it was ankle weakness that was caused by a genetic mutation that is passed on by both parents. So notably, my father is from India. My birth mother is from England. So the chances that two foreigners would come together and both have this very rare gene mutation and then pass it on to their child, 
is incredible. It's quite astonishing and unbelievable, which was my reaction to the diagnosis and the prognosis being one of severe incapacity within 10 to 15 years of being diagnosed with a condition. Now, I was 30 years old when I was diagnosed. High life by my standards in this international career, working for the United Nations, not making a lot of money, but enough, you know, to travel to the next country over. At the time, it was Colombia and exploring that beautiful country and then Panama. So honestly, I don't think I took it very seriously because I couldn't imagine what severe incapacity meant. At the time, it was a gait in my hips swinging back and forth. And people would say, oh, are you limping? Is something wrong? This idea of potentially one day being in a wheelchair or not being as physically strong as I was, again, was sort of out of sight, out of mind. And so I just gone forward with my career and went on to Angola in Southern Africa, and then Beijing, Madagascar, Mozambique, Thailand, grad school in Italy, and then Haiti for the earthquake emergency operation. Oh, through those years, the disease progressed. And again, I seriously don't think I imagined that I'd be where I am today now, age 44. So 14 years since I've been diagnosed using a power wheelchair. I think that helped me a lot because by the time I was offered the opportunity to go and serve in Haiti, the United Fund, I was using two leg braces and two canes to get around. And even then, I believed everything was possible. And I didn't grow up with anyone with a disability around me. There's no disabilities for dummies guidebook. And so my question was always like, why not? Why can't I go to Haiti? Why can't we make accommodations where needed? I was challenged in many ways of being stigmatized against, of facing discrimination in a way I never had before. And really because of the people I was serving and being a voice for them and understanding, it made me more of a warrior of having to set that example with myself and my own journey in my career. Wow. That's really amazing and incredibly impressive. And yet through all of that, And in the face of living with the chronic illness that you described, you decided to make a trip into the the Grand Canyon in Arizona in the United States. Can you talk about what inspired you to make that trip? Well, just like you asked the question, why would I make that trip? And my answer would be, why not? Having had this privileged career of traveling all over the world, when you take a break, which is called R&R, rest and recovery, from your duty station... I would go to the country next door or two countries over and have a wonderful adventure. You know, going up the sand dunes on four wheelers in Namibia at sunrise and sunset, or exploring the Amazonian jungle in Ecuador and being on river rafts there, or going um, mountain climbing and visiting these very far off villages in China. And so when I came to the United States, and wanting to have another adventure, I wasn't deterred by the fact that now I was using a walker and leg braces and everything was so strenuous and slow. It was, hey, what is the grandest adventure I could have in the US and what's more grand than the Grand Canyon? And that's how it started really, as I said, I wanna go and explore the Grand Canyon rather than you know, say buzzing off to the Caribbean or something like that. Let's explore the United States. It's such a massive, beautiful country. That was really it in the beginning. I wanted to have an adventure. And as I started to do research and realized that 
for only five, and now I think it's six million people who visit the rim of the Grand Canyon, only 1% go down into the canyon's valley. I want to be a part of the 1%. Again, that question, why not? As I started to realize that it's not an accessible place and that it is loose terrain, this is true wilderness, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to be able to get down the path of the South Rim or the North Rim using a walker and leg braces. And you see these half-day trail rides with mules. <laughs> and the princess in me was like, I'm not riding a donkey. Uh-uh. <laughs> I thought, well, why don't I learn to ride a horse? I could, you know, take a horse down. Also, I didn't want a half-day experience. I wanted to get in there and explore. And that meant multiple days inside the canyon. And so I did. I, I'm really someone who is very goal-oriented and I make a point of, I guess it's manifesting in a way, but saying out loud to the people around me what I want to do, because then I feel accountable to actually do it. So I told my friends, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> my poor friends find me exhausting. They're like, yeah, yeah, Cara. Or inspiring, uh, depending on how you <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I started to take horseback riding lessons here in Atlanta, Georgia, on the weekends, as I was working with UNICEF during the day. And as I started telling more and more people about what I was doing, another friend who's a blind adventurer suggested that I make it into a film. And again, the me, why not? Even though I knew nothing at the time of making movies, we made it into a documentary film. So you gave us a few glimpses and about the Grand Canyon. You talked about the rim and you talk about how you go into the Grand Canyon. For those of us who, who haven't been to the Grand Canyon, just take us into the Grand Canyon, if you will. Paint us a picture of what is the Grand Canyon? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're standing on the top of the rim, as you said, what exactly is it that you're seeing? First and foremost, you are seeing majesty. It is one of the most majestic, breathtaking, awe-inspiring sights I have ever experienced. And this is from someone who has traveled all over the world. It sort of reminds me of the first time I saw the Taj Mahal, that no picture can do it justice. And for me, the Grand Canyon was that. You know, it is rightly deserves all of its accolades and being one of the natural wonders of the world. It is so vast. I mean, it's a mile deep. You can't even see all the way to the left and all the way to the right because the Colorado River that runs through it is 277 miles long through the Grand Canyon. And even looking across to the other side, you're not seeing all the way to the North Rim from where you're standing six, seven miles in front of you. I think one of the things that you know, dawned upon me. And I must say that I didn't realize what a fear of heights I had (laughs) until I was at the edge of the Grand Canyon, six feet, eight feet above the ground on a wild Mustang horse. It was so bitterly cold. We went in April and we didn't expect uh, how cold it would be. The night before it had dropped to 23 degrees Fahrenheit. We were camping in Macro Campground. I also didn't imagine on the South Rim how many tourists there would be, a lot of international tourists at that particular time. But you do see how rugged the land is. And what is so beautiful and captivating is you could stay in one spot. So I'm not taking away credit from people who do just go to the rim and stand because it changes color throughout the day. The rock formations as the sun moves and the shadows change just gives you something new to look at and marvel at. And of course, there's wildlife. There's birds and lizards and 
We saw rams and deer and all things scurrying around. So if you love nature and you love just being with nature, it is a glorious place to go. As we began the descent, I think what was most surprising is how narrow the trail is. From the south rim, which we descended from because the north rim was still closed, and the north rim as well at the time was still closed because of snow. The south rim didn't have snow, but it's very, there's a lot of loose pebbles and rocks as you go down the zigzag trail. As you get to a corner of the zigzag, it's called a switchback. And in some points, you see this death-defying drop to the bottom belly of the canyon. Falling over is not the leading cause of death, but one of the causes of death of the Grand Canyon. You do feel that you are in a place that is so much bigger than you, that you are so small and insignificant, and there is an element of danger. You've got, obviously, it is, it's not manicured. And I think I appreciated that. While it seems contradictory to someone with a physical impairment who would have, it would have been much safer and much easier had it been a paved road with a handrail, I honestly hope that never happens. Because there was something to be said of being in such a rustic place. I think there are very few areas, even some of our parks in the United States, that are that rustic, raw, and wild. As we descended, I know that the difference from the top rim of the canyon to the bottom is approximately anywhere fifteen to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, you're ripping off layers of clothing. The sun is warming up. I experienced a lot of the sky. Uh, as much and I had this terrifying fear of heights. And so we were staring up into this beautiful, crisp blue sky. And, uh, you know, as we're taught as a child to make shapes out of clouds, I did a lot of that. But every time I had the guts to look down again, just marveling at how the topography and the flora and the fauna change going from the top where you see much more of a forest to the bottom of really being in a desert environment where you're seeing cacti, for example, and all different varieties, you know, things that I'd never seen before in all of my travels. I think what is most profound as you come to the bottom is to see the mighty Colorado River. The, you know, the I've heard it called the bloodline of the West, America's bloodline to the West. And it is powerful. And I'm forgetting the stat of how many tons of water rushes through the Colorado River that has created the Grand Canyon as deep as it is. I knew going in that they say that the Grand Canyon is anywhere from six to four million years old, but the rock within it is actually up to over 1.2 billion years old. There are some black volcanic rocks that are the oldest. And so you're sort of on the lookout because history is all around you. And to think that there have been tribes, the Havasupai tribe and the Hualapai tribe, Navajo and Hopi natives, the Havasupai the south room that we descended had lived there for over 800 years. You feel that as you are descending into the belly of a giant. In this just truly magnificent description of the Grand Canyon, you glossed over your adventure within this adventure. Memory serves you very early on when you were much closer to the top, you fell off your horse and shall we say had a up close and personal look to some of the the gravel and rocks that you so nicely described. You had to overcome a big challenge when that happened. So talk to us a little bit about the fall, but but how it shaped the rest of your experience. 
yeah, that's a great overcoming a great challenge is so feels like an understatement. <laughs> As I said, to begin the descent, I was on on a wild mustang named Sheriff. We had brought five wild mustangs from Utah from uh, West Taylor's ranch, who adopts and trains mustangs. They're intrinsic beings, so but they are big babies, fight or flight animals. We're on a thousand pound animal who, but luckily mustangs in particular. We chose them for this rough desert terrain and because they are sturdy and strong. Within an hour, I had only met Sheriff the day before when we were doing emergency dismounts for an accident as such, where if I was, as I mentioned, there's no handrails. If you fall off the horse towards the edge rims, if they were able to catch me, meaning my crew that was doing, they would pull me under the belly of the horse. Within the first hour of the descent, and the descent took us 10 hours that day, it's a seven mile descent or five to 6,000 feet. I actually, the horses mentioned it's a very rough trail. It was an oversized step going down and I wasn't in the right position. And being as weak as I am, my torso being as weak and my neck, I actually luckily didn't fall off the horse, but flung forward and smacked my head on the back of the horse's head. My, I was wearing a helmet. It was pushed up. And so I just remember things were dizzy. I was disoriented. The path was too narrow to actually take me off of the horse. So they assess, you know, did I have a concussion? How bad was it? Was I coherent enough to stay on the horse? We have to get to the halfway point. There's about another two hours down to the 2300 foot mark where there's a, a flat plateau to take me off the horse and assess the real damage. My head hurt. And luckily the swelling came outside. It protruded as the size of an apricot or a let's say, yeah, about an apricot, the swelling came out. We affectionately named it the Klingon. It's a bump that would drain into my face. It's too fantastic black. So not only now did I feel at the mercy of Mother Nature and the Grand Canyon, I was questioning myself and my physical strength, which, you know, I had come up with this idea in 2014, and here we are, April 2018. My body has deteriorated significantly, and I need to go on for another seven hours. And so really that overcoming, I don't think I overcame my fear. I embraced the fear and matched it with courage that really was infused by the trust I had in the expert team that we had taken along. Our film crew, our logistics manager, Harlan Tanny, they have been working in the Grand Canyon for more than 15 years. They are professional outdoor experts, not only in filming, but in climbing and in whitewater rafting. So we knew we had the best. Our wild Mustangs, as mentioned, have been properly trained. My horse riding instructor was with me and my husband, John Masters, who is a retired army ranger. So I couldn't have been in better hands. And I think one of the, the luxuries of me being able to focus on channeling courage to match that fear, to be able to keep going, was that the big decisions of, our, of safety and can we keep going were left to the crew. I think that was really important, delegating who was responsible for what. And without me knowing at the time, which was probably a really good idea, they were saying, what is this it? You know, at that, that halfway point at that plateau, the only way out would have been to have a helicopter evacuation because the mule train of tourists was actually going up the road. But we persevered and they assessed that my injury was not serious enough that I could keep on going. They put tape all around this massive bump to get my helmet back on. And I went another seven hours, absolutely terrified, some point at the very end, crying, snot-nosed. You know, there was nothing glamorous about it, but we made it to the bottom of the 
the canyon to the Colorado River, crossed that block bridge, and spent the first night at a campground. I just have to mention that was day one of 12. <laughs> there was a lot more ahead of us, uh, but that was enough adventure for a lifetime. Well, you raised a very important distinction that I want you to touch on because it's a really powerful one. There's a difference between overcoming fear and there's a difference between embracing fear. And you said you had embraced it. What does that really mean? The difference between overcoming and embracing? For me, if overcoming would have meant I wasn't scared anymore. And to be honest, I was. I was terrified. Even the next day when we continued riding to the North Rim, I was still scared. Rather than going down, we were now going up. It definitely wasn't as steep, but there were parts where the horse would have to jump up a step. And I hadn't done that. I'd been learning to ride in a flat arena. And here we are in what felt like the wild, wild west. So embracing the fear was focusing on what can I control? And at that, in that moment of such a depth of being terrified was I could control my breath. I controlled my body stance and paying attention to what my trainer and to what to West, our head wrangler, or better known as a horse whisperer, uh, were telling me in terms of how big the steps were. We were crossing here. We'll take a break here. Really being present in the moment, being intentional about each breath, being intentional, understanding that this magnificent beast that I was sitting on could feel my energy and the tension. And so to give the poor guy a break, having to try and relax my body while still staying in position so not to be injured. It is an incredible feat to have. I've never had to do that before. I don't, I don't know how many people actually have to do that hour after hour to be so conscious of your thoughts, your breath, your mind, and your physical movements in order to prevent injury. So really it was embracing of what I could control and letting go of what I couldn't. I want to take this a step further. There was so much in what you just talked about in, in terms of how all of us can better embrace the, the fear we have in life and, and turn it into, into positive things. And what's the, the one lesson that you would impart upon all of us to take from, from the experience that you had that we could use either to make our lives better or the lives of those around us better? I would say that fear is natural, it's normal, and it's healthy. And the lesson I learned was keep going one step at a time. Don't be thinking about what's happening a hundred steps ahead of you because you'll probably get hurt or you'll give up or get too scared. But have the courage, find whether it's courage, confidence, faith, whatever it is that you pull to, to be able to take that next step and then the next step. And slowly but surely, you can persevere. We as human beings, and I wouldn't have known it without doing this trip, we are so incredibly resilient. And I think it is when we are faced with the most daunting, terrifying, challenging, difficult situations is when you will really get to see what you are made of. So I encourage you just to try and take one more step and worry about that second step when you get there. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Just looking back at the trip beyond the, the apricot size bump on your head, the snot running down your face. Kind of what's that one enduring memory that you take when you think about the grandeur of the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River? It is so incredibly powerful. When you are in the belly of the Grand Canyon, you know, after riding from south to north rim and then back 
again to the river. We rafted 150 miles of the river over eight days. Every campsite was unique. Not only, as I mentioned, the colors, the slick canyons, the river, the waterfalls, the different flora and fauna that we saw, the animals. Remember that you are in true wilderness. It was the most life-changing experience of my life. And I hope that everyone who can would be able to go and experience the Grand Canyon in one way or another. And if it's not the Grand Canyon, then somewhere else in this glorious world that takes us away from big cities and modernization to be able to enjoy it. Because it fills you up with an, I don't know, inexplicable comfort that this is where we've come from and so many people have come before us. The Grand Canyon is dangerous. I think people need to acknowledge that everything that is written in terms of recommendations, especially water, staying on the paths, there is a reason that it is so highly regulated and I'm so glad that it is. It's so strict as to where you can and cannot sleep. Everything that goes in comes out with you, even your own feces. And you have to have permits if you're going to go into the belly. How many people, how many animals, the entry points, the exit points. I really hope that that will be sustained. And go with the professional outfitters that are there who are experienced and who have a lot of experience working with people with disabilities. Azra was the rafting crew that we chose. And it was a phenomenal, life-changing again, journey for all of us. Building on that, you know, all of us experience nature in different ways. There's, as you said, there's just grandeur throughout the world. Not everyone for any number of reasons, disabilities, socioeconomic reasons, just time constraints, can't always visit places like the Grand Canyon. Yet within us, we all have the ability to connect with nature. How do you see people connecting with nature and and forging a bond that hopefully protects Mother Nature so she's there not only for us, but for for all those to come after us? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I live in the suburbs of Atlanta in a city called Smyrna, where their main to fame is that Julia Roberts is from Smyrna, Georgia. We don't have much. We have, um, even though it's the city of trees, we have what's called the Silver Comet Trail, and it's a walking trail. Uh, you know, we don't really have access. There isn't a lot of accessible places for wheelchair users in Georgia. And so my husband and I go on the Silver Comet Trail, which is a concrete path. But there's a little small green in one of the areas. And we take a blanket and he helped transfer me out of our chair. Honestly, we lie on our backs and marvel at the sky. Because while you can't reach the Grand Canyon, you're looking at the same sky as if you were there. And so just getting lost in the beauty of the trees, and you see the birds. And if you really pay attention, you hear things that you might not hear otherwise, and you notice things that you wouldn't notice. And it's wonderful to be able to escape. And I think that if more of us took the time to indulge in that small pleasure of nature, whether it's trees or the sky or a brook or a stream, a Hoochie River that runs through, Atlanta, then we learn more and appreciate more and are more likely to stand up for supporting efforts of climate change, of stopping climate change, and looking at ways in which we can be a part of conserving, conserving our nature and our wildlife. Well, that brings me to the final question. And this is a question that I ask everyone on this podcast. To be honest, it's the one I find the most inspiration from. So despite the ravages of climate change, 
despite the degradation we see to so many of our habitats and ecosystems and threats to so many different species, both large and small, there is reason for hope. I always believe there's reason for hope. There's reason for hope for a better future. What makes you, Cara, so hopeful for the future? I'm hopeful, one, for two reasons. The fact that we have social media and, we, and information is at our fingertips, we can take a deep dive into learning about Antarctica or Iceland or the Amazon jungle, places far, far away from where we live that we will probably, most of us never get to explore. And the more knowledge that we have will influence our attitudes and hopefully our behaviors in terms of preserving nature and standing up to preserve it for the next generation. The other part that makes me hopeful is is that tourism and travel is becoming more accessible for people with disabilities. You know, there's 1.2 billion people with disabilities around the world. We are consumers and we want to travel and explore, especially, you know, being so constricted in so many ways just in our communities. And I think there is an amazing opportunity as more people with disabilities can travel and explore and experience wildlife and nature, you've got another huge segment of society who are going to stand up to protect it. Well said. Thank you very much. We really appreciate having you on this podcast. Your personal story, but the story of your journey into the Grand Canyon is just so inspiring. So thank you for taking the time to share it with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.